Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. We're going to be talking a lot about emotion today, uh, which is great. This is... I had a wonderful uh, day to kind of set up this conversation in that uh, so many things went wrong. <laughs> went wrong. Uh, my my wonderful guest has been so patient. Um, we we had some technical difficulties. He went from his house into the university to uh, uh, tried a bunch of different headphones. Micro. Oh my goodness, guy! It's been a it's been an ordeal. It hasn't been. There's bigger things in life to worry about for sure, but there's a there's like there's just been a series of like uh, inconveniences today. It started with as I was already running late, I got locked in my bathroom. <laughs> this is a thing I already shared with uh, with Nicholas, but you, I, I'm raising awareness for this new issue that I didn't. It was never on my radar <laughs> before. What you want to do is maybe keep a screwdriver under your sink um, in case the handle or the lock mechanism on your bathroom uh, handle uh, just breaks and it turns and it doesn't open. Fortunately, I was on the ground floor, was able to crawl out my bathroom window, get a screwdriver, crawl back in. And that's that's how it started. And then this was like hours ago. And then Nicholas and I have been dealing with tech issues and all of these other things. And I, 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 I'm so fortunate to have such a wonderfully patient uh, guest with me today. So please welcome all the way from Stanford University, Nicholas Coles, everybody. Thanks for joining me, Nicholas. This is again. We also recorded for a few minutes and then had issues come up. Then there's subways going by your uh, or or trains going by your apart. Wow. This is it's been a real emotional roller coaster. Well, that's exactly Um, what I was thinking, Shane. You know, we had some fear. We had some frustration and anger. Um, some, you know, like feelings of triumph and excitement when we finally could get it to work. So an emotional day. indeed. yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is it it really set things up quite nicely, especially for it's I want to let you set up what you do and and some of the basics of your background and research first. Um, But there's definitely specifics of of some of your research that I've already been thinking about as all of this has been uh, going on over the last couple hours. So why don't you introduce yourself to the good listeners? Yeah, yeah. So I'm Nicholas Coles. I am a research scientist at Stanford University, previously a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard University, and before that was a PhD student at the University of Tennessee working with uh, Dr. Jeff Larson, who has also been on this show many times, 
Um, and of course, my my greatest acc- accolade so far is actually being on this podcast. So thank you for inviting me, Shane. <laughs> well, you have a low bar for accolades. Then. <laughs> but yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, Jeff is awesome. I, I He has a poker night every other Saturday that I uh, that I'm sometimes uh, able to make time to attend. And it's a lot of fun. And everyone that Jeff has recommended for me has been fantastic. And I looked at your work and see it looks really cool so talk about maybe a little bit i actually this is uh such an interesting topic to me whereas it i imagine it's interesting to everybody normally if i have a guest on it's like what got you interested in learning about uh algae you know like how did you get into that but but this is the uh, researching emotion um it's it's just like who wouldn't be interested in that but but what was your path how did you decide on the field oh man there's like so many so many things that i think that happened that sort of led to this but I, i think you know when i try to think back as far as i can i remember sort of being in my early science classes as like, I don't know, seven-year-old and learning about the senses of touch and and hearing and taste. And I remember, you know, having this sort of thought experiment posed by one of my teachers where they said, well, if there's any sense um, that you feel like you could like not live without, like, what would it be? And I remember at the time telling them, like, it'd be my sense to feel emotion. And of course, my science teacher, you know, scolded me and said, well, that's, that's, that's not a sense. Um, we're talking about, talking about taste and hearing and, and emotion isn't a sense. But at the time, there was this profound feeling of, yes, it is. And the fact that I became so angry at this teacher uh, suggested to me that this is a very powerful um, thing that we feel, but, um, you know, wasn't being discussed, at least in the, you know, elementary school science classes. And so I became really interested in this. I said, this seems to me to be the most profound feeling that we can experience and um and i wanted to know everything about it and so i've spent a lot of my career trying to figure out what what it is what is emotional experience um and then also uh because of that i'm just interested in anything that has to do with emotion in general and so i'm very interested in um you know like group-based differences in emotion emotion inequality um anything that has to do with the study of emotion i'm i'm quite interested in just so i can prove that teacher wrong that's that is fantastic can you can you repeat again you said group based what were the two things that you just mentioned group based um differences in emotion i'm really interested in how you know the emotional lives of people can can vary and you could you could think of any group so you could imagine how the emotional reality that we occupy could have hypothetically been different if we were raised in in east asia for instance so i'm very interested in Mm. cross-cultural differences and the types of emotions that we value the types of emotions that we typically experience. But you could even imagine within culture that there might be certain groups um, that, for instance, might experience more anger than others. There might be certain groups where they're discouraged from expressing um, that anger. And so to me, those are all really interesting questions that are beyond my initial interest in like just knowing what emotional experience is. Um, mm-hmm. This is sort of like a broadening of that interest for me where I'm also just interested in uh, you know, the emotional realities that we occupy, understanding what that is and, and, and how it could differ from person to person. Mm, yeah, that's often when I find myself thinking about emotion, 
my starting point is from kind of an evolutionary uh, perspective of why do we have these things in the first place? What is the utility? What What is this emotion driving uh, a given organism or humans to do in different contexts? But but uh, there there is so many environmental and in, in the I guess I'd never really thought too much about the cultural differences before, but it's 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 pretty widely understood that um, uh, that you know certain cultures are more serious than others. Some are more playful. Some are uh, more individualistic or collectivist. There's there there's so many different environments that uh, like the emotions that you can express during whatever sport you're playing are are maybe very different than than the emotions that are socially uh acceptable or encouraged in an office setting and um and this is that's that's changing pretty wildly all the time that's that's interesting because going back to the physical senses there's the age-old um philosophical question of you know does does the sky look the same color of blue to everybody or whatever but um and of course the answer is yes but with emotion <laughs> i'm kidding i don't exactly know that answer i don't but either I, I i i i would i would guess that that there's there's a lot higher correlation between how colors are experienced than how uh, uh, the emotional lives that we live within are experienced. I, I would think that there's a lot more variance within our emotional lives than interpreting a, a specific color. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's a lot a lot of thoughts that I have about this, of course. But it, you know, to talk very briefly about these cross cultural differences in emotion. Um, Jeannie Sai is a psychologist here at Stanford who's, you know, studied this way more than I have. So, so everything I know about it is because I've read her work and just been really excited about it. Um, but one of, one of her papers looked at uh, differences in the emotions conveyed in uh, grieving cards um, and compared uh, specifically uh, grieving cards in Germany versus the U.S. And so to clarify when I mean grieving card, like a card that you send someone after they've experienced a, a death of a relative or a friend. And, and what they found is that uh, the emotional messages that you commonly see in those greeting cards wildly differs across those cultures. And so um, in the U.S., we often want to put this like positive bend on death and we say something like, oh, like, be happy that it happened. Like, you know, um, like, like cherish the memories you had with this person. Um, be thankful for the time that you had with them or like wounds will heal with time. And um, apparently the greeting cards, uh, the, sorry, the grieving cards in Germany are more so like, there's nothing you can do to overcome this sadness. Just, just <laughs> you know, <laughs> like a greeting. I love that. Yeah, like that a little card. more, I, I, I don't know how much of this, because this is, I should say this up front because I think it's going to come into play during our conversation. Um I don't know how much of this is my own sort of knee-jerk kind of contrarian uh, uh, default mode that I have where I don't, I don't exactly know 
what caused all of this or why I am this way. But I'm, I'm, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, a, a, a suburb in, in Wisconsin. And it was my experience of growing up was a very like Pleasantville, uh, every like a forced kind of cheerfulness. And every, everyone was like, uh, like a collective wholesomeness that everyone's supposed to be sharing and expressing all of the time. And it, it always felt a little disingenuous to me. So I think that I sometimes err in bias in kind of a distrust of some of the, the light, like forced positivity, motivational speaking, pep talky sort of thing. So I actually relate more to those, to those German, uh, uh, cards than that. Like that feels real to me. Like that feels honest, <laughs> you know, but, but maybe that, that might just be a part of my, uh, you know, default contrarian reaction to my upbringing, whereas if I would have been raised in Germany, maybe I'd be like, gosh, stop being so grumpy all the time. <laughs> There's positive ways to reframe this. Yeah. So I, I was a, a visiting research fellow at the Eindhoven University of Technology um, a few years ago. And so uh, if you're not familiar with that, it's like located in a city in Eindhoven called Eindhoven uh, in the Netherlands. And one of the first things that I learned was that there was just massive, this is an anecdote, of course, um, but I, I, I think there's something to it, that there's massive differences in the sort of expected, they, they call them display rules of emotion in the Netherlands versus the US. And smiling for no reason whatsoever in the Netherlands uh, was considered very strange. And uh, I remember I was... <laughs> Yeah. What? Yeah. Like, you know, like, uh, can we, can we pause on yeah, that pause. for a moment? Like, let's take all that in. This is, wow. I want to, now I want to, I already wanted to visit the Netherlands and there, there's, a, there's already, there's so many positive things said about it all of the time from afar. It seems like, it seems like it's a very scientifically oriented uh, culture. And it, it seems like there's just lots of, seems like there's a ton of great work that comes out of there and everything. And it, it seems, it seems like they're, uh, uh, what is it like the hap happiness quotient or whatever the term for the thing where uh, the, uh, kind of, you know, when they try to measure basic, yeah, yeah um, gross national happiness. Gross national, yeah, instead of domestic product, it seems like they're always really high on that scale. And so that's shocking for me to hear that smiling is an abnormal thing there. Well, like smiling for no reason. And so oh, smiling for, oh, yeah. okay. So, so okay. I, I think we're very smile happy in the US. And, you know, for instance, when you, you know, I don't know, like if I was just walking onto a train <laughs> and I was going to sit next to someone, I would probably give them sort of like an affiliative smile, like, hey, like, yes. glad to be coexisting in this world with you. And and, and that just seemed a, a little bit, you know, more strange when I was there. And I was attending um, a research talk, and, and granted, it wasn't a very good research talk. And so I, you know, I, I raised my hand to like say something. I'm like, oh, this, you know, this is like really interesting, good research, but I have these few critiques. And the person who I was studying under said like, if an American says that your research is like interesting and good, that's the Dutch equivalent of saying that this is utter trash. 
Um, and so they, they, they sort of had this intuitive sense that there was like this cultural filter um, where, you know, we, you know, people in the U.S., this was their impression, people in the U.S. were like very optimistic, very smiley, very polite. Mm. Um, whereas, um, you know, I was sort of told that in the Netherlands, they really value being blunt and direct um, and, and, and genuine um, and like how you express your feelings toward to one another. And so um, it's an mm. anecdote, of course, but it really uh, was my lived experience when I was there. Man, I love that. I mean, I'm, I'm on team genuine. I, I, I think that, uh, I guess some of the forced, I, I love the idea of emotional displays because I, I often, I think about that quite a bit with, uh, there's this really good, um, RSA animate video by I think her name's Rachel Maines uh, and the title is Smile or Die and uh it, it it was it was like a I've I've never had my beliefs on this subject summed up so well in just like a 8 to 10 minute video there, there's something creepy about about this social like being forced to kind of put on a face, being forced to be a to be a cheerleader around the office, and and um, and actually in that in that video, she even uh, speculates on uh, there's this good documentary maxed out that um, what what's her name? Um, hold on a second. Wait, is it? I'm just going. Is it Elizabeth to, Warren? Was she? Elizabeth Warren. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, there was before the 2008 financial crisis, she was asked uh, to give speeches about risk mitigation for banks and stuff, and she looked at the evidence and would present a case of like, I think you guys are lending to people that don't that aren't showing an ability to pay back these these loans and basically the, over and over again she was told like well that was interesting but we like to keep things positive <laughs> around here and that's so I, I use that as an example of just the the potential downsides of 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 large scale like mandatory positivity that it seems like are uh that that maybe because i live in the u.s but it seems like it it leads to a fair amount of prideful ignorance in the u.s and i i believe that there's i believe there's a lot of value in in believing in yourself and feeling driven and all of that but of course we all want to be happy but we want to choose to be happy we don't want to feel forced to put on a face of happiness all of the time and there's this really interesting sort of like intersection with gender here as well um and so there's this really fascinating literature on what they call motion labor um which is you know essentially this idea that labor is more than just sort of like physically lifting things and like engaging in you know, intellectual tasks, like managing our emotions is a form of labor. And in certain areas um, of the, like the job sector, you have to do it more often. And so think about um, like, I used to work at a theme park. And when I worked at a theme park, I had to engage in a lot of emotion labor. And I actually got, you know, sort of scolded at one point because I was told I didn't look happy enough. And uh, which is like <laughs> such a weird thing to get scolded for, but that's, you know, that's called emotion labor. And 
Um, there's a you know a really great literature on it, and um, and and it you know there's sort of differences in the types of emotion labor um, that people have to perform, and there's also differences in the types of emotions that people are allowed to express. And so um, in this literature, they often will describe how women can be penalized for expressing anger that men aren't like as penalized for. Um, and the inverse is like men being penalized for crying, um, typically expressing a lot of sadness um, when it comes with tears is sort of like a socially unacceptable um, expression for men in the US. There are exceptions though, you are allowed to cry um, like when you win the Super Bowl. So like when you, when you, when you like come, when you have this great triumph. And that's it. Yeah. So Shane, when I cried, when we finally got the microphone to work, um, that was a socially acceptable form of crying. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's like, you know, uh, an, an interesting part of it, part of it as well. It's like, um, there's also a really great book by Davin Phoenix um, called The Anger Gap, where he, you know, he's a sociologist and he sort of explores this idea that um, in the U.S., um, black Americans don't have the same liberty to express anger as white Americans do. Um, and he talks about, you know, all of like the implications this has for things like protesting and engaging in politics. And so um, those are the sorts of things that like I'm very, you know, interested in. I'm still very much at the stage where I'm learning a lot about it. Um, I've been sort yeah. of focused on emotion experience for a long time and not, you know, as much about like group based differences in emotion. But it's it's something that really fascinates me. And I think it's sort of uh, like the next step that I hope to take. That's that's sort of a there's a lot of um, speculation or maybe not even maybe um, research uh, as well in terms of uh, females not being able to uh, or or not being as socially acceptable to express anger and say the workplace or whatever, whereas uh, whereas the boss does it and it's like, that's, that's how you lead. That's how you be dominant. And then yeah. a female does it. And, and, uh, the female boss is like bitchy or whatever has yeah. you know, these labels attached to that same experience. Yeah. The, the crying as a man thing is like, that's cause I, man, what I, I, I wish that I cried more often than I do with a when I when I do I'm always like yes finally because it's it doesn't happen that much but during movies uh I I really like a like a a beautiful when there's some twist or something it doesn't need to be like sad or just just something really clever like the usual suspects or something like that where i'm just i'm appreciating the art of like oh that got me and um and i'll tear up a little bit and I, but i i often there's that's the common thing to like you tear up you're experiencing like tears of joy and you're like hiding them from the people around it like oh geez yeah. i hope someone doesn't see these see me expressing joy in this particular way yeah yeah we're gonna have a i want to let your listeners know shane and i are gonna have a really nice cry session uh today in this, uh, <laughs> this um chat so stay stay tuned and um you know shane i also want to point out like just like you know how beautiful it is to experience emotion um, you yeah. know, like just like that, 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 you know, like, you know, people think of being like foodies, but not emotionies. I just, I made up that word emotionies, but you know, for me, there's nothing so beautiful as like, like a really like, like just being really surprised by something and, and sort of sitting there and in a very sort of conscious and mindful way, thinking about how that feeling feels for you. 
Um, yeah. And same with same with sadness. You know, I, I wish that you know we could. I guess this is like what a movie theater is, but it would be interesting to like go to a place where you go there to experience emotions. And I find all emotions to be sort of interesting to experience. Um, you know, like yes. I don't. You know, I don't like sadness. Doesn't sadness is more beautiful to me these days than it was. Um, at like other points in my life and, um, and, and, you know, I, I don't know. So I, I sort of encourage listeners, like if you're interested in emotion, like really think about how it makes you feel. And like, it is like a very interesting phenomenon, similar to like touching like a nice scarf or listening to a beautiful song. The emotions you experience are like equally beautiful, like, I don't know, aesthetics. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, and that, that is sort of a way of um positive reframing that actually does seem to work for me or that i buy into that seems to add value to my life where um I, i've been meditating more again recently i i go in streaks where i fall out of it for months or more at a time uh and i'm back on a meditation kick and when i do i definitely i'm just tuned in i'm just a little more mindful to uh to those things but even even things that even things like thinking about you know covid or global warming or mass extinction or something like that I, I, i'll be i'll be thinking about you know some huge existential you know the 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 almost hopeless feeling of of how the human condition can feel sometimes and all of the suffering that is experienced on earth. And there's something there's, I think the intuition or, or at least some of the social pressure, at least in the U S is to kind of ignore or distract yourself from thoughts or feelings like that, or, or seek ways to resolve those things. Where as I, I think some of those, some of those most kind of in quotes negative emotions uh those are some of the ones that have the sort of uh from an emotional palette point of view it, it has like a a richer uh <laughs> kind of feeling to it oh you that's know? really interesting describe it that way yeah yeah um and and so that's like it, i i've shared this before on the show where I don't, I don't experience loneliness that much, or at least not on the conscious level. Maybe I do just as much as everybody else, but I guess I'm not as mindful of it. I, and I've spent quite a bit of time alone. Well, I've been, I was traveling for like 17 years and you're by yourself like quite a bit. And then I have like a huge, you know, I'm performing in front of a crowd and meet a zillion people afterwards. It's like a little overwhelming. If anything, I kind of prefer the alone time. But once in a while, I'll just get this wave of loneliness and it's, it's like, it's, I almost get excited because, because I don't, I don't experience, it's, it's kind of novel when it happens. It's kind of like, um, I don't know. It's kind of like tasting something bitter or something where on the surface, it seems like, oh, well, why would I eat something bitter? But it's like, oh, actually in certain and certain dishes that adds a really nice value and flavor to, to the experience. Yeah. Thoughts, questions, concerns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, I, I have a lot of thoughts. My first one is like, I thought that's 
I thought we were getting so close to Shane crying on his podcast and it didn't happen there. So <laughs> it's not going to happen because I, and I wish that it would. It would be it would be great. It would make for such good podcasting. It's just I like I can't. It, I, don't, I Do you ever do you ever try to cry? Sometimes I try to cry. Like, I'm like, ooh, is this a cry coming on? And I'll try to cry. It just never works for me. It just, just never. I cry like once a year and I have to cherish that experience for what it is because I just can't. It just won't come out other than that. There, I know a lot of people that cry way more often than they like to. So that's a different problem. And I don't uh, that I don't relate to or have experience with that I'm sure could be potentially worse in certain instances. But, uh, but yeah, if, if you get a cry out of me today, I'm going to be thrilled. You're going to, you're going to win a prize. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, um, you know, for me, the, the one thing that can like just always consistently make me cry is the opening scene from the movie up. I don't know if you, Oh, I should watch that movie. Everyone oh. says that's a good one. So, I, the opening scene is just utterly, utterly tragic. And we use it in emotion research a lot to get people to feel sad and to get people to cry. And, you know, a lot of times we have these videos that we use and I, I watch them and I'm like, okay, this doesn't really age that well, or I've seen it a few times and it's not really that effective anymore. And then you worry that maybe it won't work in your study. That opening scene from Up, in my opinion, is one of the most beautifully crafted emotional elicitators that I've ever encountered in my life. And I can, I've watched it dozens of times because I keep using it in my studies and I cry every single time. There's really? All right. I'm in, I'm sold. I'm yeah. sold. Shane, I, I'm going to email you the link. I can't to wait. I'm going to email the yeah, link yeah. and we should record like a reaction video of us watching this yeah. for, for your viewers so that they can <laughs> they can humanize you and know that Shane experiences emotions too. Yeah, yeah, we could do that. I'll, people that listen to this show know that I experience uh, uh, so much emotion that I just can't stop blabbing about it. Maybe that's not true. I'm also, it's weird because I'm, I think that I'm, I think that I'm, uh, I think it just comes along with being a comedian where we get rewarded for kind of being vulnerable and sharing things that are maybe not as, uh, um, you, you know, the, the sort of things that you don't necessarily express around the cubicle or whatever. And, and I mean, there's different styles. There's like tough guy, like, Hey, this guy's shirt's stupid in the front row. And like, that's just not <laughs> my style. And then, and then there, there's people that, 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 uh, explore their uh um like there's a special nanette that uh uh made some waves um a few years ago where it's just being like very very vulnerable or there's this uh show one mississippi um with tig notaro on amazon prime that i just watched recently that's fantastic she got she got her breast removed from because of cancer and also had uh she had been like uh molested in her upbringing and her like mom died and like all of these things like came to a head all at once and uh and she expressed this stuff on stage one day uh, and 
anyway, it ended up being made into this very amazing TV show that's very honest and genuine and thoughtful and funny and and uh, it, it's it's fantastic. But I so I I think that I uh, if anything there's incentive for me to be more open about articulating um, kind of some of my inner experiences. And I, I think that I'm sort of privileged in that way um, because then once you're, that's the other thing too, with, with, uh, with like social displays where it's, where it's in the same way that some people are meant to be like cheerleaders around the office as a comedian, you're meant to be like really vulnerable or you get rewarded. You just notice it after a while. You share something about having a bad day or whatever, and it gets this really big laugh. And like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, what else could I dig into? And then but then it's almost you 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 start you start um you start mining a little too hard after after a while, whereas like a subtle passing emotion, you're like, ooh, uh, let me latch onto that one and and like dig into that and and try to express that a little more. So I I almost have the kind of opposite effect going on, but it's 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 interesting. I'm also really interested in kind of uh, the idea of self deception having social utility, whereas it it's uh, it's easier to convince others of a thing if you believe it yourself. And I think that there's stuff going on with that with emotion as well. So in some ways, I don't know if my expression, my overexpression of emotion is any more genuine than being a cheerleader around the office just because I'm just in a different social environment than uh, someone in a cubicle. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I, th- I think it's interesting in the sense that when people think of Display rules. They they often want to think about it as this, you know, thing that pervades all situations. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, they have this idea like men can't cry, um, and that's not true because you know, as we see, like, you can cry when you win the Super Bowl um, and not be too penalized about it, but you can't be you can't cry if you mess up a pass. Um, and and so uh, and and I think what you're sort of articulating here, Shane, is like there's certain professions where it seems to be more socially acceptable to, the, to display emotions. And, and so being a comedian, being one of them where people, you know, like it when you go on stage and you express this very, you know, raw emotion. But yeah, maybe not so good in the workplace if I just like sat down in the middle of a meeting and said something really dark, like we're all going to die. You know, eventually this is all pointless. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. oh, wait, hold on. That's not... Um, that's not the point right. of today's meeting. So, um, yeah, yeah, that just some some quick thoughts on that. But uh, you know, Shane, I have thought a lot about this idea of you know, like posed, like like fake poses of emotion, as like you know, like that's been a lot of my research about on you know what that does to our actual emotions when we when we fake a smile. Um, does that actually make us feel happier? Um, I love I read just a little bit about about this and I'm so excited to talk to you about this because I I one of my you're possibly debunking one of my favorite uh, studies to reference, which is it always happens some every every time a, a study is just a little too fun. <laughs> 
<laughs> a good rule of thumb is like, oh, that's probably not going to age very well. It's probably not going to replicate very well. There's probably going to be some complexity and nuance discovered down the line uh, with that. And uh, and the um, maybe you can share it for us, but the 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 pencil in the mouth uh, study is one that I've that I've shared. I'm sure I butchered it in the past, too. So. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if you want to start there, but I, I, I love this subject. Yeah. So, so Shane, I'm going to take like a minute to explain the theory a little bit as well. Yeah. Um, which I hope yeah. your listeners won't hate, but if they, if they do, I encourage them to, you know, sit with that emotion for, for a minute. Um, <laughs> so, so this, you know, my interest in the effects of posed facial expressions on emotions stemmed from my interest in figuring out what it is that an emotion is. And you know, one of the theories that I find really intriguing uh, was originally proposed, well, I guess popularized by um, William James in uh, 1888. And uh, William James was like sort of a philosopher slash psychologist um, at Harvard University. And he sort of posited that emotional experience is just sensations from from the peripheral nervous system to so the body. And so when we say we're experiencing an emotion, what we're doing is we're articulating that we can sense that our heart rate is elevated and that our blood pressure has changed and that there's all of these sort of changes in this bottom part of the body, um, like below the head, um, that we can sense because we have things like proprioception and interoception. And so we notice this physiological change. And William James said like, that's the emotion. Before then, people sort of thought that like emotion was something that was sort of disembodied. Um, and then it happened and all of this stuff happened in your body as a byproduct. But that, that was just a, a byproduct. It was sort of, you know, uh, had a bunch of different other implica implications, but that wasn't emotional experience. And William James said, no, 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 no. It's that, that physiological feeling is emotional experience. And so that's sort of been my, my theoretical grounding is that, yeah, it's those interoceptive, proprioceptive uh, changes in our body that we sense. And that's oh, what uh, gives like a... Hold on. Yeah. What were those words? I'm so excited. Yeah. If I just learned, I so learned a new thing. Interoception is your ability to detect changes in things like heart rate um, and blood pressure. So if you go on a long run, um, you might notice that your your heart rate is accelerated, and and your mm. the your ability to detect that is interoception. Um, I see. Proprioception is like movement. And so you move your, your arm over your head and you have you know, the ability to engage in proprioception. And so you know that your body is moving in physical space. Um, and the idea is that it's our ability to, to recognize that our body is changing um, that gives us the ability to experience what we call emotion. And so emotion is just us detecting things like accelerated heart rates and the tensing of the muscles. Um, and, and that's the theory that, that I sort of subscribe to when I think about emotional experience. Um, so any questions before I sort of talk about why that relates to my interest no. in posed facial expressions? No. And so if this, well, yeah. I, I mean, so just so you know, my kind of default perspective on this is I, I tend to, I, I tend to think of, um, usually the, the emotions coming first mm -hmm. and being drivers and, and the conscious articulation of these things is just 
a story that we're telling ourselves that is often like, uh, I question how accurate the story is, our, our ability to articulate why, uh, you know, a reason why uh, any of us give for having a feeling or experiencing something uh, is, I think, shaky. Usually, I, I think that you had that you had the emotion first, and then you behaved in a way, and then afterwards, you make up an explanation for why that did that. That may have been primed by completely other things that you're that were you know subconscious processes or whatever or things cues within the environment that you weren't at all privy to. Yeah, there, there's actually a really interesting study on that, Shane, where. Um, so, so, so first I'll kind of talk about like the, the nuance there and then I'll tell you about the study. The nuance is that, you know, emotion is, is broad. And so the sort of claim is that emotional experience, the, the, you know, the, the conscious experience of emotion is in part based on our ability to detect these changes in our body. But emotion happens before experience, um, right? You know, something in the environment occurs and we sort of cognitively evaluate the, the meaning of that change. And so, uh, like I drop like, I don't know, my coffee and I'm just like, okay, what does this mean for me? Oh, well, that was my last, my last bit of coffee. So this is devastating. My day is going to be ruined. Um, and that creates this like physiological change in me. Um, and yeah. I'm sensing this physiological change. And so that, that's, that sensing of the change is the conscious experience of emotion. But I think you're right that, you know, afterwards we might then say like, well, why am I feeling this way? And maybe I think that I feel sad about dropping my cup of coffee, but maybe I'm actually sad about the fact that, I don't know, coffee is really, you know, a really like weird market um, and it sort of exploits certain forms of labor. Like maybe there's more to it. Um, maybe I'm not even aware of why I'm sad, um, but that's, that's, you know, sort of like a meaning I just think making. there's like, yeah, there's like lots of little things like that that break the dam. Like you just have a lot of other stuff going on yeah. all of the time, and then and then you and then like the coffee thing that happens. It was unexpected, and it's and there's just this emotional release of all the other shit that you're uh, that you're dealing with at the moment that you're that you're kind of pinning on coffee, uh, and then and then like the conscious articulation as well seems to be like consciousness seems like such a dramatizer as well like you like the story is always so graduate or, or or uh grandiose uh compared to the small nuanced thing that may have happened yeah you know? I, I think there's really good evidence that we often are unaware of the things that are causing us to you know experience a certain emotion and so like of course like there's going to be like one psychodynamic psychologist like listening to this podcast is going to get really excited like oh my god freud said that but like there's also been a lot of work in social psychology um where mm -hmm. we find the same thing and so you know actually one of the studies that i ran with uh jeff recently this was a, a facial feedback study um so i guess it kind of gets into facial feedback now um but we had people pose expressions of anger we had them pose expressions of happiness and they weren't doing anything other than just posing these expressions and staring at a blank screen and what we found is that people felt a little bit uh a little angry after they posed expressions of anger. It was, it was mild, of course, right? They're not like raging, punching holes in walls, but they felt a little pissed off. Um, and we found that they felt- I can't do, I can't do it and not feel silly. I can't, I can't see my angry face. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm not like the best at like posing facial expressions of emotion, but, um, but yeah, so we, you know, we, we would 
teach these people how to do it. They were a little pissed off after they post scowls. They were a little happy after they post smiles. But what was interesting is th this, this study was done for like totally different reasons than showing that people could feel angry after scowling. Um, but at the end of the study, we asked people, do you believe that posing facial expressions of emotion will impact your emotion? And a lot of people who posed expressions of anger and then felt angry and posed expressions of happiness and then felt happy, then at the end of the study said, no, but posing facial expressions doesn't impact your emotions. And, and that suggests that mm -hmm. they were completely unaware of the fact that their emotions were changing throughout the course of our study. Um, and and there, there's other examples in the literature where this has been documented as well. But I think, it, I, I think it just sort of gets to your point that we're often unaware of our changes in emotion. And the study I wanted to tell you about was, um, this is a really classic social psychology study by Schachter and Singer. It doesn't replicate perfectly well. So I'm going to just kind of, you know, warn you of that ahead of time. But some of it seems maybe true, but some of it false. But this was a study, I believe it was done in, in like the 60s. And they would take undergrads and they would inject them with epinephrine, um, which just makes you feel really excited. Um, and of course, we can't do this anymore. But this back in the day, I guess you could just bring people in and, and inject them with epinephrine. Um, and, uh, you know, what they found was that this is simplifying the study a little bit, but you could inject people with epinephrine and, and, caught, and, and sort of fool them into thinking that they're really annoyed about something or really excited about something because you produced this change in their physiology that they are now, you know, thinking must have an emotional cause because it's not every day that we suddenly get this like burst of adrenaline from epinephrine. Um, and mm. so parts of the study don't replicate too well, but I think this overall idea of you can experience changes um, in your bodily states that then can manifest and, and seem like they're caused by some something emotional. That that part of That's... it seems to be true. That's yeah. So so that's um that's really interesting. So so you exaggerate, you can you chemically induce like an exaggerated physiological response, and the uh that um that displays as uh as a as a more um exaggerated uh emotional experience or um articulation of of what they're so, so people will be like more worried or more excited about they would just be less even keel generally mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. yes yeah. and there's really interesting hmm. studies where like some of this is so obvious to like you know it's like some people like I, I, when you think of it it becomes obvious so like some of the other studies give people beta blockers and beta blockers yeah. you know are like you know essentially make it really hard to experience anxiety right um, and so we know that there's all sorts of ways that we can kind of, you know, change our experience by changing our physiology. So like in hindsight, it seems like such an obvious proposition, but mm -hmm. it's for me like very thought provoking. Like, I don't know, like, I, as someone who, who like really spent a lot of time thinking like, well, what, like, how is it that we're able to experience emotion? Like, what is that thing to kind of settle on that seemingly true answer of like, well, it's you noticing changes in your physiology. Um, and of course, you, you know, you have your situation. So you use the situation to assign causes and to maybe like give it more nuanced meaning. Um, but that, that, you know, that sort of change in your heart rate and the, 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 the tensing of your muscles, that, that's that thing that is emotion. And it is a feeling. It's a feeling just like, just like taste is. Um, it's a mm -hmm. sense. Um, and so uh, 
that's sort of a, the theor yeah. theoretical grounding that, that I sort of have in this literature. Yeah, I, that's, I, I mean, it does, I, I guess there's always caution warranted when something seems obvious or intuitive. Uh, I'm, I'm curious how, why that hasn't replicated because it does seem, I mean, if you just look at, yeah, you know, if you're if you're hungover, you're you're going to feel like, uh, uh, it, you know, like it just off, like everything in life is miserable, and like God, I just want to die. You're just hungover for a few hours. Whereas if you if you drink too much coffee, you might find yourself feeling a bit more anxious about uh about what you have going on or the state of the world or whatever else it's that's is i remember so i i broke my feet once and i had to crawl down a mountain with uh two broken feet um and i remembered i i was i'd been practicing meditation quite a bit at this time and i i'm grateful for that because it helped with my relationship to pain but also i noticed this interesting thing which i was it was like a few hours that I had to <laughs> crawl down a, a mountain. Um, and there was a moment when I found myself thinking about the political climate and, uh, and, and different various, I think maybe I was on like a little bit of a healthcare trip or whatever, but, but then I was just thinking about politicians and stuff. And I remember, I remember saying to myself, like, Oh, the whole system's broken. And then I thought, oh, wait a second. I'm broken right now. I'm I'm literally broken. And I'm projecting that onto these huge, complex, kind of intangible dynamic systems that I that I I can't possibly the, the best I can do is have like a silly heuristic of, or worldview on it. But, uh, and then I'm just projecting my, my current internal feelings on, onto that, like screw all those politicians. They're all corrupt. They're all broken. It's like, oh, well, yes, maybe, but also my feet are broken right now. <laughs> and that that's coming. That's, that's a factor in my judgment of, of how, of how the world feels to me right now. Yeah. They, they call that, um, affect misattribution, um, at least in, in the social psychology literature. Um, and yeah, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people have studied it and try to figure out like, when does it occur? When does it not occur? Because it, you know, it, sometimes it doesn't, right? It's like, sometimes we break our arm and we're like, I'm so glad that things in the world aren't broken. Um, so like, it doesn't seem yeah. like we always do it, but yeah, like intuitively we, we sometimes engage in this practice and, um, you know, like I know like one of the reasons why, <laughs> why I love caffeine so much is that it makes boring things seem a little bit more exciting to me. Um, and so I remember mm. in graduate school when I would take the really boring classes, that's the day I would always drink a little bit more coffee and hope that I could, you know, first of all, be alert, but also like maybe if I could just accelerate my heart rate enough. I'll actually find multi-level modeling exciting. And, you know, <laughs> spoiler alert, I do find multi-level modeling really exciting, but maybe it's because of the, you know, affect misattribution. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to think about coffee. I'm, <laughs> I'm going, 
I, yeah, I, I I never thought about it like that. I thought like, yeah, it keeps you awake longer, but like to actually just a little nudge in the excitement department when uh when when doing something that might be a little more tedious. I always as dating advice to students who I would train, I'd always say first date, coffee, roller coaster. Like those are like the two things you have to do and and they will find you so exciting even if you're just a boring researcher. Um, and, uh, and so I think there, I think there might be something, something to that advice. Although like most things in science, I'm sure it's far more complicated than, than, you know, we can speculate initially, but, um, that's, you know, that's the sort of stuff that got me interested in whether posing facial expressions can influence emotion. Because if those theories are true, then posing facial expressions of emotion should also provide some feedback. Um, this time it's proprioceptive as opposed to interoceptive. So it's from the muscles, not the heart and the, um, you know, heart rate and things like that. And so um, if those theories are true, then we should be able to pose an expression, like a happy expression and feel a little bit happier and pose an angry expression and feel a little bit angrier. And, um, and so that's, that's something I've spent way more time studying than I thought I would be uh, spending. Um, a, fun, a fun fact for those who have listened to Jeff Larson on this podcast, when, when I first told Jeff that I wanted to study this a little bit, um, I think I was a first year graduate student and he said, oh yeah, that's, that's a cool project. That'll just take us like six months, right? Um, five years later, I was finishing my PhD and I'd spent all five years studying that tiny little topic. So um, these things always wow. are more complicated and take longer than we think that they will. Hmm. Um, so. I think this is going to just just a hair, uh, kind of a maybe tangent that I think will really get us into the facial stuff really well. But there's been a few things that's that have come up during this. How do I articulate this? So as as you're talking about um, the uh, coffee and there's my notes. This is like, this is what my brain looks like. Um, uh, so the coffee and roller coaster, um, that, that's a clever, uh, what, what do you call that? The, the false attribution or, um, yeah, misattribution, affect misattribution, affect misattribution. There's, a. It reminded me, it's the second time during this that I've been re reminded of another podcast that I just did researching the psychology of why people like horror movies mm. and uh, and actually uh, potentially creating a therapeutic uh, uh, model for situations where they might um, w work well for uh, 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 kind of emotional training. Um, and... Uh, so one of the things that came up was the cuddle effect that happens from, <laughs> you know, to take a date to a scary movie and they might grab you for comfort or whatever. Um, and, uh, and then, which is, that's a weird, like, these things are just an impulse. Obviously it's not like terribly well thought through if like, if a if a girl like thinks for a moment that I can protect her from some demon like casting spells or whatever on stage, like no, that's I can't protect you for much. Definitely not demon spells, but uh, but 
I'll take the cuddle effect. But I thought of this when you're talking about watching the movie up and getting the sadness fixed because he was uh, this uh, Colton Scrivener. He was talking about his his take was um, that there's actually it seems people that are into the horror genre actually are more anxious people and there might be reasons why they like horror what one one might be that people that are more anxious um are just more visually attentive to uh uh stress in uh stressful situations and so they immerse themselves within uh the the movie more than the average person and that immersion is part of the experience of pleasure and and why we enjoy things but he also made up uh, why i'm bringing it up is is he thought that it was actually kind of a safe way for like there's a lot of research that shows that horror the horror genre viewing went up quite a bit at the beginning of covid and everything but it, it was actually when people are experiencing anxiety one it can be a distraction to be like oh there's a there's a different anxiety that i need to be worried about for two hours and then it goes away um, you know, rather than an acute stressor, it's a, or, or a chronic stressor, it's an acute one. And then, but also there's, there's an ability to regulate it. Like you can cover your eyes and like sort of look, you can turn the volume down when you're at home. And I kind of, I thought about that with, um, with sadness in the movie up as well. If, if it, it it, like maybe maybe there's aspects um uh, of of life that are that are too sad or something that you don't want to think about and and watching a movie like up or something can can sort of be help be an emotional release or or uh uh kind of emotional training and like oh that wasn't as bad as i thought it was going to be um i don't know just some stuff i thought i'd share with you that was Yes, uh, really relevant. Yeah, I haven't um, thought a lot about it, but that's a really interesting idea. Well, anyway, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the facial expression stuff. So, one, now that you've set up some of the some of these basics, how about this pencil study that I promised people? Oh yeah, yeah. So in 1988, I believe, um, Strack Martin and Stepper ran a study where they had participants hold a pen in their mouth in a manner that either sort of facilitated smiling, so made it so that you could smile or inhibited smiling. And they had people hold these pens in their mouth while they were uh, looking at a, some humorous cartoons. And they found that when you held the pen in your mouth in a manner that sort of facilitated the smiles that you found the cartoons to be uh, slightly more humorous. Um, this <laughs> was a literal textbook finding in psychology. Like I, I learned about yeah. it when I was an intro to psych 10 years ago. Um, and in 2016, uh, a massive team of researchers, 17 labs, all attempted to replicate the study. All 17 of them failed. Um, and there's still, you know, some, some like kind of messy debates about why they failed to replicate. But this sort of renewed discussions, um, I shocked psychologists and, and sort of, I guess, started up these discussions like, well, maybe the effect, maybe the effect isn't real. Um, and this was interesting because I, when that failure to replicate happened, I was actually a first year graduate student. And that's when I went to Jeff and I said, hey, um, 
we should do this, this sort of thing where we take all of the studies that have ever been done on this. So people have been studying this for, for a very long time now. Um, and let's take all of the evidence, let's combine it into a single statistical model and see what's going on. And what we found is that despite the fact that some researchers weren't able to replicate that, that pen and mouth effect that became sort of like the poster child of this uh, area of inquiry, um, even though that didn't seem to cleanly replicate, there seemed to be a small but reliable effect there. Um, and so it did seem that when we looked at all of the evidence, that smiles could make people feel slightly happier and frowns could make them feel slightly sadder. Um, but maybe, um, you know, maybe there's a reason why that pen and mouth effect isn't working. Um, and so that's sort of the, the background with like the controversy around this idea is like, you had your poster child study, it's not cleanly replicating, it's not clear why it's not cleanly replicating. Um, and so a lot, of my, a lot of my research that I've done on this has been trying to figure out, well, well, why is it that there seems to be a real effect, but we can't get it with that pen and mouth uh, manipulation? Um, so that's sort of the, the background uh, with that mm. pen and mouth study that I think a lot of people have heard about. Mm. Um, yeah, it's oh sideways. That's how you do it. You put it in sideways. Some people do it sideways. Some people do it straight. And there's actually a lot of differences in the methodology, which is one of the problems um, of that method is, you know, we need to agree on how we're going to do it first or else, <laughs> you know, you know, we're going yeah. to be comparing apples to oranges. And so, yeah, but some people, some people do it like, okay, well, of course your, yeah, your, yeah. your, your uh, listeners can't, can't see that, but, uh, sometimes well, the pen there, is pointing. There's, there's video as well. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, if people can watch on YouTube, they'll see me giving a perfect demonstration. Um, but yeah, I guess for the listener, if, if you just try to, um, if you hold, hold the pen sideways in your teeth, it'll force a smile. If you, uh, and there's other ways of doing it, but if you, um, try put a pen the long ways in your mouth and then try to point it up, it will kind of make you frown a little bit. I think that's it. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, so what's. And then, and then there's all of the, the, yeah, I've been thinking about this, there, there's all this kind of embodied cognition sort of stuff is, it's, it's gotten really popular over the last 10 years or so. I think, I know like, uh, what is it? Emmy Cuddy at Harvard kind of uh, is popular for these these power pose things. And I know some of that stuff hasn't replicated that well. It's clearly um, it, it's clearly kind of permeating the cultural zeitgeist a bit because uh, I was just watching Ted Lasso uh, season two oh, so the other day. Such a good show. But there was a there was a season where the. Um, the owner of the team, she, she gives a, uh, a bit of advice about displaying confidence and dominance in the situation and says that when she has to walk into a tough, intimidating meeting that she goes into front of the mirror and does this big thing and <laughs> roars and stuff. And, but th this is, so uh, the, the reason I bring it up is because we're, we're seeing references to this 
this work in uh, in pop culture now. That's how popular it's becoming, and w- which leads me more and more to believe that uh, I bet it's not, I bet it's not going to replicate that that well. We'll see. Yeah. What, what's your take on all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. So so it's weird, Shane, because like I've I've occupied this very strange spot in the debate, um, and mm. so. Um, you know, a lot of research I have done, I've done has reliably shown that posing facial expressions emotion can cause people to experience those emotions a little bit. Um, but my, my sort of, I guess I've occupied a weird position in this debate because I've sort of argued along with my colleagues that this is theoretically interesting, but not pragmatically interesting. And so we say like this, this leads to small increases in happiness, but it's not big enough to like matter for most people like basically saying like listen pop culture stop paying attention to us because this is like interesting because we're sort of developing some theories about what emotion is but this this increase in happiness that we're seeing is extremely small and i'll have a paper that will hopefully be coming out in a couple of years um that's how long it takes for a paper to get published the data's in now um but i have this paper that i think will show it quite nicely so we had people around the world i think it was uh, 23 countries um, pose, pose these happy expressions. Um, and, and we found that, you know, across the world, it led to this small increase in happiness. And we said, awesome, you know, this, this theory about what is emotional feeling is, is you know, um, supported. Um, we're finding that, uh, you know, proprioceptive feedback from the face, uh, facial movements are influencing uh, emotion. So that was the exciting part. But the, the thing that maybe um, is less exciting to people is we also just looked at how happy people felt after they looked at some pictures of puppies and rainbows and butterflies. Um, and we found that just looking at pictures of puppies and rainbows and butterfly more reliably increased happiness than these uh, posed expressions of happiness. And, and, the, and the magnitude of that increase was larger. So like, if you really want that small boost in happiness, you could just look at a picture of a puppy if you like puppies, um, and that will have a larger impact on your happiness than uh, posing a, you know, a smile. And so that's the kind of weird spot that I feel like I've occupied in these discussions where I say like, I think the effect is real. I think that it's too small to like be like worthy of a TED talk. Um, and, um, and when it comes to the, the power posing stuff, that, that's, that's also very controversial, but very related, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of my research is posing facial expressions. That's posing like a full body expression of power. And basically, my take on that literature, and I, I think a lot of people share this view, but perhaps not, is that a lot of the claims are not replicating. And so the claims were that if you did a power pose, it would make you feel more powerful. It would reduce cortisol levels. It would have all these other downstream physiological consequences that would be good for, for you. Um, essentially, what it seems is going on is none of those physiological effects are occurring. Uh, we're not reliably seeing that posing this power pose can like decrease cortisol levels. We are finding reliably that it can make people feel more powerful. So, so the experience of emotion, once again, like you feel more powerful, whether there's a physiological response going along with that, that doesn't seem to replicate as well. That's the controversial part, but it does seem to lead to changes in your, you know, conscious subjective experience of power. Um, mm. and so that's sort of my take on, on, on that debate. Although I'm sure there's plenty of people who, who would, you know, argue with me about this, but that's, that's my opinion. Yeah. I, I mean, 
I I think I'm I'm personally with you. Obviously, you know quite a bit more about the subject, and I so take my opinion with a grain of salt. But I I it seems like um I'm I don't mean to say this as like a condescending way to like oh people that don't get science or whatever. I I mean from an experiential point of view of myself having gotten so excited about learning many studies about various studies through the years and finding out that uh, that like a, a small difference in say gender or age or like some some behavior between like two different groups is scientifically very exciting um to to find like the tiniest little but 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 that's often not um conveyed very well when when these findings make it into the public sphere it's it's not uh the the headline uh <laughs> sharing this research usually isn't conveying a bunch of nuance it's usually you know the attention grabbing exciting um uh or there was speaking of headlines there was an amazing one for this uh or or subheader for um one of the links that you sent me um for oh, this was about can botox ease depression by eliminating frowns researchers have doubts and then this woman uh kathleen o'grady a little tip of the hat to the person that wrote this the, the subheader she wrote a study claiming evidence for the unusual treatment raises eyebrows <laughs> very clever i yeah. enjoy a good pun do you think when you write something like that do you think like you pat yourself on the back or are you just like ah this'll work whatever just another day in the office i don't i don't know how i would yeah because <laughs> sometimes i write so i gotta write things like that sometimes i'm like that's very clever shane and yeah. no one's ever going to appreciate the stupid little connection that i made and then other times i'm like ah suckers will go for this um but but anyway the the point is is that uh uh a lot of times when when um when when these studies are uh introduced to the public the public doesn't know to kind of walk back the the findings a yeah. little bit i include myself in the public um yeah. and and know that it's a little more nuanced or or, or just subtle yeah Shane, i have like probably five dozen thoughts on, on this but i'm gonna i'm gonna list the quick ones and then the longer ones the quick one is like sure. Kathleen O'Grady is an amazing journalist. And if people are interested in oh, really I good. I loved that subheader. Yeah. Really good <laughs> science awesome journalism. Press. You know, look at Kathleen O'Grady's writings. Um, yeah. The fact that she even wrote that article, I think, shows how, how real she is. Right. Because a lot of. So, so as someone who studies the facial feedback hypothesis, I get a lot of emails from people saying, like, oh, we read about your research. We want to publish something in Harper's Magazine about how you can smile your way to happiness. And I'm like, okay, cool. Um, well, here's the thing. The effects are like really, really small. Um, you know, I, I don't think that this actually will like impact your well-being. It's just like theoretically interesting. And then I never hear yeah. from them again. Um, Kathleen O'Grady, I, I love working with her because she, you know, she wants to kind of think about it in a realistic way. Um, yeah. and, um, and, and so the background for that article is that uh, 
Jeff Larson and I had had written a critique of 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 that idea. So so in this scenario, there are actually researchers who are claiming that freezing the frowny muscles via Botox will eliminate depression, and and they're citing you know our work on the facial feedback hypothesis, saying like, well, you know, you know, there's there's all this work demonstrating that posing smiles can make people feel happier, and there's this theory of emotional embodiment. So if we just freeze the frowny muscles, depression will go away, and um. I, I reviewed the evidence along with Jeff Larson and a couple of our colleagues, and we found that the claims did not appear to be credible whatsoever. So um, we had written an article saying that the claims should should raise some eyebrows, Chains. So that's I think where that uh, where that pun came from. We said, you know, claims that Botox can eliminate yeah. depression should raise some eyebrows, and we, you know, articulated the various reasons why we don't think that this is a plausible claim. Um, and you know, I have to like really tip my hat to Kathleen O'Grady for seeing this like critical piece of science knowing that she would get a lot more clicks if she wrote about how you can eliminate depression via botox and writing about uh, yeah, the critical yeah. perspective oh instead. no i was paying her a compliment and then the but my other my my uh, uh, uh but but the, that was that wasn't yeah that's the same kind of that wasn't the kind of clickbaity uh yeah. headline that i was referencing that was just a clever thing that made me laugh oh yeah I no no i, I but, totally um, agree uh, but uh, but 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 generally speaking, it, it is I've just fallen for this. I just I know this firsthand so well because over and over again. So I'll go on a comedy podcast. And when I do that, I'm like the science guy. I don't have any scientific training or anything. I just talk with you guys a bunch. Um, and. And so I, you know, I, I tend to, uh, the, the fun, exciting studies are the ones that I, uh, that are, uh, you know, they're, they're such great conversation, you know, and then I'll, I'll go and I know I'm not alone. I know professors do this too, because I'll, I'll learn these things from a lecture and then I'll be talking with an academic that studies the field and I'll relate the study to be like, hey, I know a little bit about your field. How about this thing? It just without fail, like 90 percent of the time, at least they're like, actually, even people's own work, you know, they're like, well, that was exciting when I found that 10 years ago. And now it's, uh, you know, a little more nuanced than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's such an interesting point, Shane. And right now there's, you know, a, a lot of people say that there's sort of like a replication crisis um, yeah. going on, not just in psychology, but in a lot of scientific disciplines. Um, whereas a lot of things that we thought were very reliable and true um, uh, appear to be unreliable or at worst, not true. And, um, mm -hmm. and I think it gets back to one of your earlier points about sort of like the complexity, um, of, of, of human behavior and human behavior is extremely complicated and, you know, it's hard to study the complexity. Um, and so there's a lot of, um, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of reform happening in science where we're trying to develop methods that can help us obtain more reliable more generalizable knowledge. Um, and mm. and I, I don't know if you looked through all the links that I sent, but of course, if you did, like, that's something that I'm really excited about these days. It's like trying I, to make a better science. Yeah, I did. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm interested in hearing about the science accelerator and uh, 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 
but can we put a pin in that just for a moment yeah. to finish a few of the thoughts on the topic that we're that we're on and we'll get to that because you you have a little if we ran a little ex- long oh, today I, you'd be okay i already with canceled that, my right? whole day okay perfect excuse not all right awesome um so this uh, i've heard that it's even been prescribed in um say call centers you know you're at a cubicle and they'll and they'll put a they'll put a mirror in uh the cubicle so when you're on the phone with the customer you're supposed to kind of remind yourself to smile and then that's conveyed through the phone that comes across as a better experience and maybe it first off it wouldn't surprise me if there was a subtle the finding here and there, maybe that would be, maybe there'd be ways of, of kind of, uh, seeing through customer reviews of, of customer service or whatever, some, some control and experimental condition where this business doesn't use the mirror thing. This business does, who knows, there'd be a lot of other variables that would have to be considered. But when I've tried myself to make myself smile in front of the mirror, when I'm, I'm usually in a pretty dark place when it, when I resort to the <laughs> <Right>. old, <laughs> maybe the smiling in the mirror trick will work. It feels to me in, in the times that it does seem to offer a little bit of a mood boost, it feels like to me what's happening in my inner world and inner monologue is that it feels silly enough. If I do it for long enough, it feels silly enough that I just start like making myself laugh at just how ridiculous what I'm doing it is. And just, it, I just think about how, how bizarre the human condition is. And the, and the idea that if that is working, that I just, that that's all you have to do is it. And that makes me think like, what is, what are the controls in studies like that? Because, because could you just as easily, um, cluck like a chicken or something like that like do a different do your favorite character from arrested developments uh chicken dance or something would that offer the same mood boost as smiling in front of a mirror i i it's it's just i i don't know what's your take on that because i want to talk a little bit more about this botox thing which i'm probably not the only one that's creeped out by that there's something There's something strange about it. I mean, I'm I'm not, and that's not to rag on like cosmetic. I get, I have a dead tooth. I'll probably get a cap on one day. Maybe I'll get my teeth whitened. Who knows? Maybe maybe when I'm fifty, I'll get an ass implant or something like that, so that I, my ass reflects how I feel on the inside or something. But uh, well, let's but, make a GoFundMe for that. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 there's something about like getting rid of your ability to frown or something that like that seems so creepy and weird to me and i i don't know all right ha, I, yeah I threw all that at you have at it three big thoughts one earlier in this conversation you mentioned how you're like oh well i'm not you know i'm not a scientist i just talk to scientists or whatever and you know this is like a, a weird little compliment but i've been wanting to say it for a while so i'm just going to say it anyways 
you know, Shane, you think exactly like a scientist does think. Like I listen to your podcast a lot, and and, and this is this mm. is a, a true fact in my performance. You're to do... trying to make me cry, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> aren't you, Nicholas? In, not happening. In, in, not until we watch up yeah. together. <laughs> Maybe some tears of joy. I have to get this out there. So in my so at, at Stanford University, I have to fill out like a like a, a self performance review where I say like here like what I think my flaws are. Here is what I want to do to get better at it. And and one of the flaws that I pointed out was I said. You know, I think that I think that I have a very narrow perspective in science. I know a lot about emotion, the science of emotion. I know so little about all these other fascinating areas of science. And of course, part of this exercise is like I didn't have to tell my boss, like, this is what I'm going to do to try to fix it. And I can send you the copy of this performance review. I said, I'm going to listen to Here We Are podcast so I can learn more about some like random science uh, oh, stuff. Oh man, that's sort of scary to me actually. Like uh, now now pressure now I'm influencing scientists. That's uh that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Uh, but the, but that's that's a heck of a compliment. Thank you. Yeah. Um no problem. The cicada episode by the way was really awesome. Um Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was awesome. Uh, Barrett, Barrett Klein is coming back on um I think December, we're doing a, a sleep episode for the listeners. That'll be to him and um, Slat and Krishan, another one of my most uh, uh, listened to guests, um, uh, are, are going to be talking about sleep. So oh, that'll awesome. be a good one. Yeah, that's going to be great. Um, so anyways, one of the reasons why I brought that up is because you said, like, oh, well, maybe this is just sort of like a silly thing. Um, you know, you're, you're posing this smile and it's just so ridiculous and so it makes you feel happy. And one of the reasons why it made me think of, of your ability to, to reason like a scientist is because this is something that experts in the field have commented on when they're reviewing my papers. So like people who have thought mm -hmm. a lot about this worry about the same thing. And so the way that we've addressed this in, our, in some of our studies, there's a couple of ways. One is that we have them engage in similarly silly tasks. Um, so we'll say something like, you're gonna tap your ear once per second for five seconds. Um, and it's kind of weird, it's kind of silly. Um, but we find that it doesn't increase happiness um, to the extent that the, the post smile does. So mm. then you might think like, okay, well, maybe it's just not as crazy. Um, maybe it's not as like silly as posing a smile. Um, and and the, the reason why we don't believe that that explanation um, sort of accounts for our results is because if it was just like the sheer silliness of the act of posing facial expressions of emotion that's causing the uptick in happiness, we should see that posing other facial expressions of emotion also cause increases in happiness. Because, you know, staring at a screen like, you know, pouting and being all scowly, that, that's a pretty silly thing too. But we don't find that it makes people feel happier. We find that it makes them feel angrier. Um, and we'll have that's people such, pose. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Um, and same with pose, mm -hmm. pose expressions of sadness, which are harder to make, but it's like, you know, um, sorry, listener. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm posing, and I'm trying my best to pose an expression of sadness. It would be better. Yeah, if this we would be watching a good that. one. I'm trying to get more people over to YouTube anyway. Watch so this YouTube. is a good episode for them to, yeah. Yeah, if you're watching it on YouTube, you'd see that Shane's been crying the entire time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, but um, yeah, we find that people pose expressions of sadness, and they report feeling sadder. Posing expressions of anger and report feeling angry, and of course, these effects are very, very small, right? So. As I mentioned earlier, you're not punching holes in the wall. You're not sobbing. Um, it's just a tiny little change, but it's theoretically interesting because we think it suggests that there's this feedback coming from the body that's informing your experience of emotion. Hmm. There's something interesting about 
putting yourself through something that that's that's like well i wouldn't be doing this for nothing you know mm-hmm. i i wouldn't be i wouldn't be posing uh like all big in front of the mirror and doing this mantra and pep talk if it didn't work you know like the the fact that you're doing it convinces you that it works which then does make it work it's like i i advocate that instead of uh like buying um snake oil you make your own because in in the process you'll need to learn about snakes you need to wrangle snakes you need to oil them however that works it's like a whole learning process and then if you do all of that and then you have like your (laughs) you know you have like a a little tincture of of snake oil or or whatever and you've you've gone through all of the all of the work of getting that snake oil it's probably going to be more than just the omega-3s that are going to uh lead to some positive improvement because it's it's this it's this reinforcer yeah like oh i've done all these things right and that that really i mean it's such a powerful effect and and uh, as always if you're a listener to the show you uh, you know i probably you probably know that i say this a lot but uh as a reminder to listeners when i say placebo effect that's not to negate uh i i actually think the placebo effect is like much of what life is about and makes life worth living and is super powerful um so it's not to say it's nothing but it's uh it's just something that always needs to be considered in all of this kind of research yeah yeah that's it's you know shane i'm like about to like jump out of my chair because i it's so funny that you mentioned that because it's it's literally what i'm studying right now and 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 jeff Myself, Will Gertner, Brick Froelich, um, we have a paper. Um, a draft of it is actually available online to like a listener who actually wants to read the paper. But um, we'll be resubmitting it uh, for a second round of peer review soon where we wanted to look at exactly this. And, and the reason why I'm so excited is because I didn't tell Shane that we ran this study. So this, this is like organically, right? This is another example, Shane, you're thinking exactly like a scientist does because that's exactly the thought that Jeff and I and Will Gertner and Brooke had. Like maybe this is a placebo effect. Um, Mm -hmm. and so we ran six studies to look at this and there was a couple of ways that we tried to look at this placebo effect and, and we thought it was a placebo effect. So that was sort of our baseline belief of like, okay, we have this small effect. It doesn't seem to be like that important for like, you know, it's a very, it's too small to like make people like revolutionize their lives. Um, and we Mm -hmm. think that it might just be a placebo effect. So we ran a study where we brought participants in and we said, Hey, we're going to have you pose some facial expressions of emotion. And we believe that it's going to impact your emotions. So that was one group. And then the other group, we said, we do not think this is going to impact your emotion. Um, And consistent with uh, research on placebo effect, those instructions mattered. Um, The effects of facial feedback are much bigger when you can kind of introduce those placebo considerations and tell people ahead of time, like, this is going to impact your emotions. But what was striking was contrary to our own initial hypotheses, we still found that people reported feeling slightly happier after posing happy expressions, slightly angrier after posing angry expressions, even when we told them ahead of time that we did not think that was going to happen. And we even went a step further and told them the purpose of this study is to demonstrate that this is actually like not an effect whatsoever. 
And hmm. so that had a few limitations, right? It's like maybe participants came in and said, like, I don't agree. Like you say it's not real, but I know it's real. Um, so we ran some follow-up studies where we um, asked participants, like some of them like months before they went into our study, do you think posing facial expressions of emotion can cause you to experience those emotions? And once again, evidence of the power of the placebo effect, those beliefs matter. But even people who told us either right before the experiment, several months before the experiment, right after the experiment, doesn't matter when we measured it. Some participants said, I do not think that posing facial expressions of emotion will impact my emotions. And they still exhibited this facial feedback effect. They were still reporting that they were slightly annoyed after posing angry expressions, slightly happy after uh, posing happy expressions. And so what I found so interesting about this, you know, these series of studies is that we did demonstrate how impactful placebo effects can be. But contrary to our own initial beliefs, it didn't seem to explain the effect. Even if you don't believe that smiling will make you feel happier, it led to a tiny little increase in happiness, albeit a very small one. If you're really trying to make yourself feel happy, listen to Here We Are or look at pictures of puppies or whatever. Um, there are much better ways of making yourself feel happier than this little yeah. pose of happiness. Puppy pics all day. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, you got to get on Instagram. There's great stuff going on with, uh, um, there, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of good raccoon memes making the rounds uh, right now. There's there's a lot of if you follow me on Instagram, I post a lot of fun animal stuff on on my stories that'll brighten your day. And if you want to feel miserable, you can follow me on Twitter um, where I'll complain about a lot of things. Um, so I like to cover all my bases. Um, how long? Were participants asked to make this expression? Five seconds. And, and we chose five seconds because mm. it most closely resembles the duration of a true authentic expression of happiness. Interesting. Well, because going back to some of the um, social pressure stuff of the, of the cultural differences, like when you mentioned the Netherlands, it made me think, um, you know, when I'm out and about in, in, um, social situation, I have a lot of different groups that I, uh, you know, hang out with. I have my comic friends and then, you know, sometimes I'm around relatives or I'm like at the pickleball court with a bunch of strangers or something like that. And so there's, there's varying levels of social dynamics, but there's also varying levels of, uh, of comedy savviness and I'm, I'm like in the netherlands do they will they fake laugh at jokes as kind of a social lubricant because it's it's something that it's painful for me it's like i want to be nice it, 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 an experience as a comic is someone's like they're a comic they must love jokes i know jokes let me tell it just happened i mean it happens all the time. I, I feel bad. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be some like pickleballers that I play with listening to this or something. But once in a while, there's just these cringy moments that happen. And, uh, and sometimes the right thing to do feels like, Oh, you just like give it a little fake laugh and, and move on. Uh, you know, and, and it doesn't, it's not crickets. It's not like an abrupt, it doesn't make things awkward. It's just, you move on, but it's also like painful 
for me too because it's it's just i i have a i have I just have a more sophisticated uh, like a comedy palette than uh, than uh, a lot of people, and it makes me, I guess, a little bit of a snob. And some sense, there's plenty of I have plenty of friends that aren't comics that make me laugh way harder than my comedy friends. But there's there's definitely people, there's a lot of people out there that are not very comedy savvy and still think like classic dumb knock knock jokes and stuff are just the most hilarious thing in the world. And, uh, and that's, a, it's a, it's kind of a painful situation to be, in. but the reason why I asked about the, the length of time in that was because I, I feel like smiling in front of the mirror for a little bit to pick yourself up is a different experience than kind of what we were talking about of, of working in customer service for all day, where you're truly putting on a face that's exhausting. I mean, acting is uh you know social acting is something that requires skill or requires effort it, it it requires effort to behave in a way that is different than what your intuition and feeling is it is it's different than your default it's different than you would be doing authentically and um and so i yeah i I, I don't I don't know what your thoughts are on on any of on on kind of the idea of like I don't know like a study where it's like hey you need to act happy yeah. for for thirty minutes I think would make people really miserable you know yeah yeah it's it's such an interesting interesting point and um so so oftentimes this is sort of called like emotion labor. Um, and it's, it's tricky. This is actually a study I want to run in the future because, um, there, there is, there is quite a bit of evidence showing that people who have to engage in a lot of emotion labor tend to feel a little bit more burnt out. They tend to be a little bit less satisfied with life. And so, you know, in this scenario, they're saying like emotion labor is sort of like a detrimental hard form of labor, um, right? Like it's not something we enjoy doing, uh, which, which makes sense, but you know, we need to tell people that, right? Um, and one of the tricky things is that there's what what's happening is is we're wrapping up a lot of things into one. So you you are faking a smile, which according to William James's theory should cause that minor increase of happiness. But you're also doing it in an extremely unpleasant circumstance. So you have that sort of working against your actual emotional experience. Um, there's also these very strange power dynamics going on where it's like often if you're the one performing emotional labor you're sort of in the non-dominant position. Um, and so one of my sort of untested hypotheses is that the power of that situation, of that unpleasant situation with sort of non-ideal power dynamics for the person expressing the emotion, I think that the emotional implications of that situation outweigh any tiny boost in happiness that you get from actually posing that expression of happiness. And the way that you could empirically test that would be to have people sort of engage in the same type of emotion regulation. Um, sorry, not emotion regulation, uh, uh, like uh, expression regulation. Um, and, uh, and so like, I don't know, like to make it simpler, we both, like you have two groups of people, they both deal with a really bad customer. They, they have to convince this customer that they're happy and it's not really that big of a deal. But in one condition, 
you force them to pose that smile during it. And in another condition, you don't force them to pose a smile, or maybe you have them pose a neutral expression. You say like in this business, the customer wants you to be completely stoic. Um, and what I suspect would happen if the sort of theory of emotional embodiment is true is that people are experiencing a little bit more happiness when they have to pose that expression of happiness when they engage in that emotional labor. But the situation is just way too powerful. Um, the very fact that you have to deal with this angry customer and try to convince them that you're not upset at them, that is such a more potent elicitor of negative emotions that no amount of smiling will sort of undo that. So, mm. so that's kind of my, my, my working hypothesis is that there's two things going on. There's the, the negative situation that's forcing you to do emotion labor, that's bringing your emotions down. And then there's that actual posed expression, which is kind of slightly bringing your emotions up. But overall, it's a negative experience because of how difficult the customers are. Um, so that's, that's mm. sort of, uh, it's a hypothesis I would love to test because I think it's really interesting that I can bring people into an experimental setting, have them pose a happy expression and see a small increase of happiness, yet know from personal experience and from the literature that egregious amounts of emotional labor um, do not tend to be associated <laughs> with you know, higher levels of well-being. I love the phrase egregious amounts of emotional labor. I think I think that we need to uh, get emotional labor, uh, the term emotional labor into the mainstream. Uh -huh. I, I think I think that would I, th I think that would uh, resonate with lots of <laughs> lots and lots of of people. Might be the title of this episode, actually. It's, uh, it's emotional labor. Oh man, long day, a lot of emotional labor. You know, that's, that's I, I think what's so brilliant. Um, so, so there's a sociologist who coined this this term, and, and there's such a like illustrious sociologist that I, I should know their name, but I, I don't. So maybe like when you're chatting, I'm going to Google it really quickly. Um, but um, mm -hmm. Her Hirschfield, I think. I think it's Hirschfield, but I'm going to Google it anyway. So I Al Hirschfield? No, no, no. Um, I, I'm going to Google it when you're talking so I don't distract the listener. Sure, but, sure. Um, uh, this idea of emotion labor, it's been around for a while. Maybe it hasn't sort of like made its way into the mainstream yet. But I, I, when I learned about it, I found it so validating because it's sort of like an invisible form of labor that we don't always know we're engaging in. Um, and so, you know, like I worked at a theme park for a while and I'd come home and it'd be like really exhausting. Um, and I'd be like, you know, like sometimes you're like, why am I so exhausted? Like I just like made people like happy all day. Um, I was just like pulling harnesses down and like taking out trash. Like it doesn't seem like it's that hard of a job, but then you realize that you engaged in emotional labor and you saw like 60,000 people that day and you had to convince all 60,000 of those people that like they're at a very happy place. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and that can really wear on people. And I think that <laughs> as we kind of talked about earlier in the discussion, like certain groups of people have to do it more. So this could be like something based on like your profession, based on your gender, based on your race, based on racial identity, based on, um, based on a lot of factors. And so, um, that's something I'm also interested in is the fact that more, some people have to do it more often than, than others. And I'm now in a situation where I don't have to engage in much emotion labor, um, right? Like academics mm. can kind of be like stoic or angry and there's like, oh, they're, they're, they're deep. They're not mad at me. They're just really deep in thought. 
So I don't have to engage in it as much as I used to. And now I've learned about that being an invisible form of labor. And I wish that people knew about it as well, because it might help them realize why, why they find like a retail job so exhausting or why they find a Thanksgiving dinner with some family members that they don't love mm. um, as much as, you know, to be so exhausting because they're faking this smile for two hours and they're pretending that everything's okay. And that, that takes effort. Yeah. Yeah. Just, there's a lot of value in feeling seen or, or having, having things like this with, with the, that help kind of explain some of these mysteries of life uh, that, it, it, just just knowing that alone and being mindful of it i think does uh does create a little bit of opportunity to kind of let yourself off of the hook um a little bit and uh well as we start wrapping up um shane shane one, one one quick interjection my google you search you found it yeah it's arlie i i was just i was killing time <laughs> till you found that name Ar- arlie so, hoschild okay. i'm so embarrassed that i didn't remember the name but um arlie hoschild really brilliant i never work. remember names yeah i'm terrible okay awesome um so as we wrap up do you want to um i i don't know if you want to touch on the accelerator or whatever i i'm i'm definitely interested we haven't talked much about the replication uh crisis mm. at all on this podcast it, it probably warrants at least its own episode at at uh at some point but um it's it's also yeah I, w- I would love to hear your take on it and and some of the things that you're involved with to combat it it's it's something that's that's been um it, it, seemingly talked about quite a bit more it, at least that I'm that I'm seeing um uh, more and more over the last five, 10 years or whatever. And you're a, uh, you're a young scientist. You're probably, uh, you know, I think it's hopefully something that the younger people entering the field are maybe going to be really mindful of and help correct. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I, I always worry, you know, I, I thought a lot about this chain. I worry about talking about the replication crisis because, like, I think that it can be co-opted by science deniers. But um, I know, yeah. But but yeah, I'm gonna that, I'm gonna that, talk that about it. A, um, yeah, I, I'd rather be transparent about the issue because that's that's like a good, you know, uh, characteristic of science. I think is that we can be truthful about right. these problems. Um, but what we're finding, at least in social psychology, is that there are a lot of specific demonstrations of effects that when we try to run the same exact study later on um, that we're unable to replicate. And so there was, um, there's been a few projects demonstrating this, but one of the biggest ones was called the Replication Project Psychology. They took um, a very large number of uh, findings in the psychology literature and re-ran the experiments as closely as possible and found that um, the large majority of them couldn't be replicated. They couldn't get the same exact results. And so this has spurred what many people have called the replication crisis. Um, And it, I think, sort of got a lot of attention in psychology over the past five, 10 years. Um, But I will say what I think we're quickly learning is that it applies to a lot of fields. And so a lot of of research in cancer biology isn't replicating cleanly. And and one of the reasons why we realized that there was a replication issue is because um, 
researchers who were trying to develop cancer interventions were going to cancer researchers saying, hey, I can't even develop this intervention because I can't even replicate your initial finding. Um, and so this is sort of, a, I would love to come on um, and, and Shane, we could find like some other guests to talk about the very fascinating history of like the replication crisis. Um, but, you know, essentially yeah. seeing that these findings aren't replicating has caused psychologists to engage in some soul searching. Why is it that, you know, we're sort of canonizing these things as truth um, despite the fact that we, we can't replicate them? And why is it taking us so long to realize that we can't replicate it? Um, that pen and mouth study was published in 1988. It's been a textbook psychological phenomenon until 2016 when 17 labs failed to replicate it. Why did it take almost 40 years for us to realize that it mm. wasn't as replicable as we thought it was? Um, and so this is sort of causing, um, you know, like a methodological renaissance um, in psychology. And um, maybe this is sort of a topic for, for another time when I'm on Shane, but um, one of the things that we're trying to do to address this is build a science that's more committed to rigor and more committed to collaboration. And so Shane mentioned the accelerator. I direct a group called the Psychological Science Accelerator. We're a globally distributed networks of labs that pool together our intellectual and material resources to try to accelerate the discovery of reliable knowledge in psychology, knowing that if we want to claim the existence of an effect that we need to replicate it across multiple sites and that we need to use mm. extremely rigorous practices so that we know we're not fooling ourselves and that we know that hopefully 10, 20, 40 years down the line, other people will be able to replicate the results quite cleanly. And so this network is about 1,200 researchers from 82 countries and we run you know, the largest studies done in social and cognitive psychology. Um, and we do this in the name of trying to increase the rigor of science because you know, many of us have witnessed this replication crisis and we want to build a better science. Mm. How, so here's, here's something about the nitty gritty of science that I definitely know nothing about. Um, it, it, is, is it difficult to get um, funding to replicate study? I, I, I would think that that would be a, a challenge because I, I, I I, I would think from someone, um, uh, you know, deciding on what grant to approve, they kind of, uh, why, why give, you know, uh, this would be a misunderstanding, but why, why give money to something that's already known, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if that's the point of view, it, it sort of kind of feels that way sometimes, Oh yeah, you know, so. So is, is that part of the issue? You, you know, you're, you're spot on. Um, there, there's a few, you know, it's probably a complicated issue like most things and you know, with humans are, but the lack of funding is a huge one um, for the reason that you're mentioning there. There's also this idea that journals are not as interested in publishing those results. And so we have to remember that academic journals, you know, they're gatekeepers. And so one of the concerns is that people, for instance, had been failing to replicate things like the effect of power posing on cortisol levels. But then when they submitted their work to journals, journals were like, yeah, but this isn't exciting. Um, and you can't explain why those other researchers were able to get this effect and you weren't. Um, and so there's you know, probably many factors, but some of the ones that have been pointed out is maybe scientific journals weren't as interested in publishing these results because you know, a no, you know, not finding an effect is always inconclusive. And so mm -hmm. you know, they might say like, go do more research or 
I don't know, like maybe readers don't want to read about this. And then, yeah, there's no funding for it. So if you're not getting the funding for the research and you're not publishing in the journals, um, you're not getting a job in academia. Um, and so today's top story, no effects found. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so, so So you formed a whole global collaborative trying to find a bunch of no effects basically. Uh, well, so I, I know that's not way I'm being silly, but yeah, you know, it's, it would, it would, it would, in your, in your position, it would be kind of, it would be kind of exciting to find a uh, non-effect when there was previously an effect found. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we have done that in some of our projects for sure. Um, I'm trying to think of which ones I can talk about because sometimes journals don't allow us to talk about results until they're, until they're published. So I guess I'll just leave this for the next conversation of there, there are plenty of, mm-hmm. you know, pieces of science that people thought were really solid and that we're having um, difficulty replicating. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I would say, you know, sometimes we are in the business of doing replications. Oftentimes we're also in the business of doing a new study. And so in the midst of COVID, for instance, we, uh, you know, called upon a lot of researchers and we said, give us your best idea. We're going to run some global studies on COVID. Let's find some of the best, you know, studies that we can run on the psychology of COVID. And, and some of these were replications. Many of them were completely novel tests that we then ran on, you know, on a global sample of humans to sort of see like, what's going on in people, you know, what's the psychology of COVID, what's going on. And um, so we're in the business of, you know, seeing if things can replicate, but we're also in the business of, you know, trying to discover new truths about the world, but ones that are hopefully more reliable and valid um, than ones that came before them. Mm. Uh, interesting. Well, yeah, that's, uh, we'll have to do a whole episode on that one of these days. Um, well, if the listeners are interested. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, it doesn't. I'm interested, so that's all that <laughs> all that really matters. And I'll listen to the, I'll listen to that episode, Shane. So we have two listeners. That's well, all we need. You know, sometimes there's things that um I know that are important for me to learn more about that I also recognize may not be the sexiest topics in in the world and. Um, and I don't always, I'm not saying that's just an example of that, but I don't shy away from learning something because I, I think it's not going to be as exciting for public consumption or whatever. Cause otherwise I'd just be watching TV shows and commenting on them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that's a great approach and I, I and I think it will be a really exciting um, topic to explore with the listeners. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for everything. Oh my gosh. This is like, this is like a, almost a four and a half hour endeavor that we went on today to record this with all the technical issues and <laughs> getting locked in a, in a bathroom. Uh, Let's see if it's actually recorded. Maybe, maybe we didn't record it. <laughs> maybe they, this is our first take. As soon as you said that, I was like, <gasps> um, I, uh, no, we recorded this though, but I, yeah, that's, and Nicholas pointed out that if you're going to be locked somewhere in a bathroom, it's not bad. There's water that you can drink. Uh, you can shower, you can use the bathroom still there. There's not, there's not food on there, but you're, you're good for a few days locked in a bathroom. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so, um, but yeah, what a weird day. Um, and thank you so much for joining me, Nicholas Coles, everybody. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week. <laughs>